Would you open your Bibles, please, to Isaiah chapter 49? If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in a pew rack there in front of you. And page number is on the screen. Um, This is a uh, very passage-intense morning. You're going to need your Bible open the whole time so you can reference back to it over and over again. And uh, I would encourage you to take some notes. Um, Our passage this morning, Isaiah 49, is a very thick passage. And you may need some more time after this morning to spend with Isaiah 49. So I'd encourage you to take some good notes, maybe to visit our website in the week ahead and you can listen to the sermon again, or just to study the passage on your own. Um, Isaiah 49 is like a flower that never ceases to bloom. It's an absolutely incredible piece of Scripture. So, Bible open, something to take notes on and to write with, and uh, we're going to have a good time this morning. We are working through themes of Advent, hope and peace and joy next week, love. And the work we have to do when we talk about these different themes is redefining them, not really creating a new definition for these words, but rather recapturing the heavenly definition of these words, these ideas, hope, peace, joy, love, they, they don't come from us. They are given by God. They are created by Him. He's the definer of these things. And so what we've said in these last few weeks is that hope is not the same thing as a wish, but hope is a present confidence in God's future promises. And peace is not merely the absence of conflict, but peace is the flourishing that comes to those who love and follow Jesus Christ. He himself is our peace. This morning we have to redefine joy as well. So I want to give you a definition here on the screen uh, that you may want to write down. This is from the Cody Busby Oxford Dictionary. Joy is not merely bubbly effervescence. The word works to describe joyful people. We have a cultural understanding of it. But here's what I think joy means from Scripture. Joy is resolute rejoicing in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is resolute, meaning it is immovable. It does not change. Joy is not circumstantial. It is fixed in place. It is rejoicing. It's celebratory praise. It's not a plastic smile. It's not just gritting your teeth and saying, no, everything's fine. But it is celebratory praise in the person and work of Jesus. Joy doesn't come from our circumstances. Joy comes from the God who has made a way for us, the one who laid down his life. It's Christ's identity and saving work that are the source of our joy. And if you find the idea of joy difficult to get on board with, welcome to the club. You're not new. That joy skepticism goes all the way back to ancient Israel, to the days of the prophet Isaiah. We're going to read about a time in which God's people had every reason to be joyful, but they struggled with it. They asked questions about it. They doubted it. The setting is this. The throne in Jerusalem was filled by a bloodthirsty king named Ahaz. Ahaz was just the most recent in a long line of wicked rulers, but he's one of the worst. 
As a result, God has reached the end of his patience with the nation of Judah. The question is no longer if judgment will come. The question is only when will judgment come. And that judgment is going to come in the form of an enemy nation that destroys Judah and takes its inhabitants captive into exile. Now, not every citizen of the nation was taken into exile. In many cases, it was young people who were ripped from their families and taken to this far-off land never to be seen again. Can you imagine the horror of seeing your child taken by force from your home by Babylonian thugs, knowing that you would never see him or her again? That's the story of boys like Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel. Well, men like Isaiah have the unenviable task of telling the people of Judah about that judgment to come, that conquest and that captivity. But that's not the sum total of Isaiah's foreknowledge. That's not the only story he's telling. God also gives Isaiah a story to tell about the restoration that will happen after the fact. And that's what we have in Isaiah chapter 49. Isaiah in the prophecy here in Isaiah 49 speaks about that captivity lightly, but the the totality of the chapter are words of hope and joy for people in captivity. Isaiah 49 is for when it seems that the enemy is having his way, the wicked are flourishing, the righteous are suffering, when it seems like God is far away and has forgotten you, in steps Isaiah chapter 49. It's a call to joy in the midst of that sorrow. The purpose it served then is similar to the purpose it serves us now. Even in the midst of what might feel like crushing defeat, God gives us joy, a resolute rejoicing in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so my goal today is this. Here's what I want to do with Isaiah 49. I want to equip you with joy by helping you see and savor Jesus Christ. Isaiah 49 speaks to those who are hard-pressed on every side, perplexed, persecuted, knocked down, But it shows us why even people in exile have a song of rejoicing to sing. So I'm going to show you in Isaiah 49 three keys to an immovable joy. How can I know this joy, experience this resolute rejoicing, it never moves? What are the three keys to that? Isaiah 49 gives it to us. Now, uh, before we read, I want to show you a real simple outline of chapter 49. Really simple outline. Three little... uh, talking points as we walk through the text. So uh, the chapter opens in verses 1 through 6 with Jesus talking to the nations. It's Christ talking to the nations in verses 1 through 6. In verses 7 through 12, God the Father speaks to the Christ. And then in verses 13 through 26, God the Father speaks to the nations or speaks to his people. So It's only 26 verses, but it's a meaty 26 verses. And if you happen to get lost as we're working through, or you just want to know what's happening in the passage we're reading, you just refer back to this screen. Christ talks to the nations. God the Father speaks to Christ. God the Father speaks to his people. All right? So these are the words spoken to people under affliction about the end of their affliction and life after. Follow along with me as I read. Chapter 49, verse 1. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. 
Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth, He has made mention of my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of His hand, He hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in His quiver. He said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said... I have labored to no purpose. I've spent my strength in vain for nothing. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to himself, and to gather Israel to himself, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says... It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and the Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers. Kings will see you and rise up. Princes will see and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. This is what the Lord says. In the time of my favor, I will answer you. And in the day of salvation, I will help you. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people to restore the land and to reassign its desolate inheritances, to say to the captives, come out, and to those in darkness, be free. They will feed beside the roads and find pasture on every barren hill. They will neither hunger nor thirst, nor will the desert heat or the sun beat upon them. He who has compassion on them will guide them and lead them beside springs of water. I will turn all my mountains into roads, and my highways will be raised up. See, they will come from afar, some from the north, some from the west, some from the region of Aswan, Shout for joy, O heavens. Rejoice, O earth. Burst into song, O mountains. For the Lord comforts His people, and He will have compassion on His afflicted ones. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has borne? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. Your sons hasten back. Those who laid you waste depart from you. Lift up your eyes and look around. All your sons gather and come to you. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, you will wear them all as ornaments. You will put them on like a bride. Though you were ruined and made desolate and your land laid waste, now you will be too small for your people and those who devoured you will be far away. The children born during your bereavement will yet say in your hearing, this place is too small for us. Give us more space to live in. And then you will say in your heart, who bore me these? I was bereaved and barren. I was exiled and rejected. Who brought these up? I was left all alone, but these, where have they come from? This is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I will beckon to the Gentiles. I will lift 
up my banner to the peoples. They will carry your sons in their arms and carry your daughters on their shoulders. Kings will be your foster fathers and queens your nursing mothers. They will bow down before you with their faces to the ground. They will lick the dust at your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who hope in me will not be disappointed. Can plunder be taken from warriors or captives rescued from the fierce? But this is what the Lord says. Yes, captives will be taken from warriors and plunder retrieved from the fierce. I will contend with those who contend with you and your children I will save. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh. They will be drunk on their own blood as with wine. Then all mankind will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Uh, several years ago, I had a friend named Dick Watkins. Dick is now with Jesus in glory. And uh, even in his 80s, he was ferociously competitive. And with his card-playing buddies one night, he just on a whim, he, he couldn't do foot races anymore. He's in his 80s. So, but he said this. He said, uh, I bet I could take a whole angel food cake and I could mash it down and eat it in one bite. And they all laughed. Oh, that's just Dick being Dick. But then the next week, one of his buddies showed up with an angel food cake. And Dick took that thing, and he mashed and mashed and mashed until it got into a little ball, a thick ball. And then he unhinged his jaw, and he crammed that whole thing into his mouth. And Dick Watkins ate the angel food cake in one bite. That's what we're going to do with Isaiah 49. (laughs) mashing it down, <laughs> cramming it in. Uh, it's, a, it's a lot to bite off. But I want to give it to you in some manageable chunks as I share with you three keys to immovable joy. That first key is this. If you're going to have an immovable joy, you need a Messiah who is called and ready. If you're going to be a person who is characterized by resolute rejoicing in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You need a Messiah who is called, appointed to the task, and you need a Messiah who is ready, who is prepared to be deployed. Now, key to understanding chapter 49 is identifying the speakers. And we have a few different speakers in this chapter. And so let's ask the question of verse 1, Who is the speaker to open up the chapter? Some scholars would say this. They would say, well, the speaker that opens chapter 49 is the nation of Israel personified. After all, look at verse 3. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. So is the nation of Israel the servant who's spoken to or who is speaking here. Well, the nation of Israel is occasionally called a servant of God, but that doesn't fit here for a number of reasons. If we were to do a quick survey of how the nation of Israel is spoken of, just in a few previous passages, here's what we would find. In chapter 42, Israel is called blind and dense and unresponsive to God. In chapter 43, Israel does not call on God in their time of need. In chapter 46, they are called stubborn of heart and far from righteousness. In chapter 48, 
They're told, you are called Israel, but you don't live up to the name. Well, verses 5 and 6 that we read just a moment ago tell us that this servant's task is to gather God's people, to gather Jacob and Israel to God. So then we would ask the question, how can wicked Israel gather wicked Israel to God? The servant in chapter 49 is not the nation of Israel. Rather, the servant is one individual. In verse 3, whenever uh, the speaker says, you are my servant Israel, he's not calling someone by name, but he's calling someone by function. In essence, uh, the speaker is saying this, that the servant's function is to accomplish what the nation of Israel was supposed to do. Israel was supposed to honor God and to be a blessing to the nations, but they've utterly failed at this task. And so this one servant with a capital S is sent to succeed where Israel failed. The servant is Israel in concentrate. He is Israel reduced to one. He is the true Israelite. He's the one who will be what Israel ought to be. And so who's the speaker in the opening lines of this chapter? The speaker is that one servant, the true Israel. We also call him by these titles the Messiah, the Christ. He is Jesus of Nazareth, born of Mary. If you have a red-letter Bible where the words of Jesus are printed in red ink, a whole bunch of chapter 49 ought to be in red ink. Chapter 49 opens with a description of the servant's calling. When I say servant this morning, I'm referring specifically to the Messiah, to Jesus. So the chapter opens with a description of the servant's calling, and the servant was called by the Lord before he was born to do the work of rescuing his people. Verse 1. If that plan was put in place before the eternally preexistent servant was born in Bethlehem, then it means that that plan was put in place even before you were born. And how often do we make the mistake of assuming that God is experiencing our lives at the same pace that we are? We pray as if He is a knee-jerk God just reacting to the various crises we face. But God has forever known your need and He has always had the solution. You're facing things today, you don't know how you're going to get through it. You don't know what new normal is going to be like. You may not want a new normal. I'm telling you this, God has seen this day, been at this day, and made provision for this day long before you even thought to tell Him there's a problem here. That's the kind of God He is. He has this plan in place. That plan goes through His servant, the Messiah. In verse 2, the servant says, He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. So verse 2 is describing the readiness and the preparedness of this servant. He he says, my mouth is like a sharpened sword. When he says that, he's saying that his weapon will be his word. When he speaks of being hid in the Lord's hand or concealed like an arrow in a quiver, he's describing how he's at the ready. And at just the right time, the hand will deploy the sword or send the arrow to accomplish his work. And then in verse 4, the servant says something that comes across as a bit shocking. 
But I said, I have labored to no purpose. I've spent my strength in vain and for nothing. Yet what's due me is in the Lord's hand and my reward is with my God. Those words of exasperation in verse 4 are not describing the failure of his mission, but the flavor of it. You see, God does not approach the arrogance and the oppression of the world with greater arrogance and greater oppression. Rather, He comes in the humility, the vulnerability, the powerlessness of a child. We can't read these words in verse 4 without thinking of the ministry of Jesus. When He died, what did Jesus really accomplish? To all appearances, nothing. By every worldly measure, his life had been an utter failure. He was perfectly within his right to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But there's another reality in verse 4 that trumps the appearance of futility. The servant says, but what is due me is in the Lord's hand and my reward is with my God. The God who called him and equipped him is using him And we'll make the final determination about the value of the servant's work. The world may look at the servant and say, weak, failure, myth, non-existent. But the final judgment is in the hands of the one who called him and the one who has sent him. So central to the possession of joy and the practice of joy is the knowledge that God has set a plan in place for your rescue even before the planet you're standing on was made. If God is reactionary and unprepared, then I'm not sure we have much hope for this day, let alone any day in the future. But God the Father has called and prepared the Christ to labor and spend His strength for you. God knows the way forward. That's a reason for you to hold on to joy. So the first key to an immovable joy is a Messiah who is ready, a Messiah who is called, a Messiah who has been deployed. The second key to an immovable joy is this, a Messiah who saves. You need a Messiah who's called and ready. You also need one who saves. That He, he has a mission to accomplish, and that mission involves your own rescue. So let's ask our speaker question again of verses 5 and 6. Who's the speaker in verse 5? And then who's the speaker in verse 6? Look at verse 5 with me. And now the Lord says, Which Lord? He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. So the, the one who did the forming in the womb, the one who did the calling in the womb, that Lord says, Who is that Lord? that we're speaking of, that's God the Father. But who's the speaker? Who's talking in verse 5? Well, it's the one who was formed in the womb before he was born in Bethlehem. It's still the servant, the Messiah, speaking in verse 5. Who's he speaking of? He's speaking of God the Father. Verse 6, he says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant. Who's the speaker in verse 6? It shifts. It's no longer the servant. Now the speaker is God the Father. And to whom is God the Father speaking in verse 6? He's speaking to the servant. I I don't know how best to communicate the infinite gravity 
and awesomeness of these verses. Because here's what we have. We have a recording of a conversation between God the Father and God the Son. It is an intra-Trinitarian conversation. That conversation takes place before the Son is born in Bethlehem. It is a pre-incarnate, intra-Trinitarian conversation. Somehow we have access to words spoken between God the Father and God the Son. I don't, I don't know what to do with that. Because all of God's Word is weighty and huge and incredible. This, this is something really, really special in Isaiah 49. To have record of conversation between God the Father and God the Son. In this conversation... We're given a glimpse into what the mission of the Messiah is going to be like. That's the subject matter. God the Father is describing to the Son what His work will be like. He gives three characteristics. I want to share those with you so you understand what the Messiah's mission, what the servant's mission is like. They'll be on the screen. Feel free to write them down at your leisure and we'll walk through one at a time. What is the Messiah's mission to save like first of all his mission is global in verses five and six look at what the father says to the son he says it's too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of jacob and bring back those of israel i have kept so the servant's greatness the servant's preparedness the servant's readiness and calling are of such a magnitude it goes far beyond what's needed for just Israel. Rather, the Father says, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. His salvation is going to reach beyond Israel to every nation on the planet. It's a global mission. This verse also tells us that this mission is not just about returning exiles to a certain zip code. That's a a part of God's restoring work. But what God does there in the return of the exiles is in miniature a picture of His great gathering of all of His people. You see, Israel's real problem is not captivity. It's estrangement from God. What good is it if Israel is brought back from captivity, back home to Israel, but they still resist God and hate Him and reject His Word? What good is it if they have the right zip code but not the right God. It's no good at all. This is the work that God is doing. It is a spiritual restoration. It is a saving work for Israel and Gentiles to the ends of the earth. It's a global mission. What else is the mission like? It's a mission powered by God's faithfulness. Look at verse 7. This is what the Lord says. The Redeemer and Holy One of Israel to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation to the servant of rulers. So again, verse 7, who's speaking? God the Father is speaking. To whom is He speaking? He's speaking to the Son. The Son or the Messiah, the Christ, the servant is described as Him who was despised and abhorred by the nation. He's described as a servant of rulers. So we have this incredible 
um, contrast between the Lord, the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, and Him who is despised, one who is a slave of rulers. And the Redeemer, Holy One, says to the abhorred, despised one, kings will see you and rise up, princes will see and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. So the servant's lowly status is not a permanent appointment. Rather, he will become the astonishment of kings. They will prostrate themselves before the one true Israel. And what brings about that great reversal? Verse 7 tells us it happens because the Lord is faithful. You remember that appearance of failure in verse 4 when the servant says, this seems like it's not working out. That great reversal happens because of the faithfulness of God the Father to God the Son. It's a reminder that to be chosen of God doesn't necessarily mean glory along the way, but it absolutely means glory at the end of the way. What else does the mission look like? His mission means glory for God's people. Verses 8 through 12 are just unbelievable. Because there in verses 8 through 12, the Lord describes what it will be like when the servant's work enables God's people to return to him. What does it mean for God's people for the servant to be a covenant for them? That's what verse 8 says. The Father says to the Son, I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people. When Jesus is the covenant, the promise, the avenue to abundant and eternal life, what does that look like? If we could bullet point what comes next, we'd have a long list of blessings for the people of God. What does it look like for Christ to be the covenant? Verse 8, we're told, you will restore the land and reassign its desolate inheritances and say to the captives, come out and to those in darkness be free. If you want to scribble down Leviticus 25, it describes this concept called jubilee. In Leviticus 25, Jubilee is this. Every seven years, God's people are to do a few things. Among them are, one, give the land rest. Don't plow, don't sow, don't harvest. You've saved in previous years for this one year. Let the land be restored. Second, during Jubilee, if anyone has sold ancestral lands in order to pay off debts, those ancestral lands are restored back to them. They get their inheritance back. Number three, if anyone has enslaved themselves in order to pay off debt, those captives are set free. So the work of the servant in verses 8 and 9 is the work of jubilee. (laughs) Restore the land, reassign its desolate inheritance, say to the captives, come out to those in darkness, be free. Only it's not just a once every seven year prospect, it is every day eternal life under the reign of the Messiah. Then he turns from jubilee language to shepherd language. Verse 9, they will feed beside the roads, find pasture on every barren hill. They'll neither hunger nor thirst, nor will the desert heat or the sun beat upon them. He who has compassion on them will guide them and lead them beside springs of water. The Apostle John borrowed from verse 10 to describe what he saw in the throne room of heaven. In Revelation chapter 7, verses 16 and 17, 
what he sees is described this way. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Verses 11 and 12 go on to tell us that God's going to bring people from all four directions to enjoy life in this new covenant, one by the servant. If you're going to have immovable joy, irregardless of the circumstances, you need a Messiah to save, and that's exactly what this one does. He has a global mission to rescue people from every corner of the earth. That mission is a mission to which God the Father is faithful. And it results in the liberation of God's people, the restoration of all that's lost. And that's what you need if you're going to have immovable joy. A Messiah who does that. Not in theory, but practically gives everything that these things might be for you. If you're going to have immovable joy, you need a Messiah who's called and ready. You need a Messiah who saves. And finally, last thing, you need a God who acts from love. You need a God who acts from love or out of love. Verse 13, just it blows my mind. It's a centerpiece in the chapter, and it's a it's a, it serves a weird purpose. At, at one point, it's like a conclusion to verses 1 through 12, but then it's also an introduction to everything else that comes after. Look at verse 13 with me. Uh, I think the speaker in verse 13, I think it's Isaiah. Shout for joy, O heavens. Rejoice, O earth. Burst into song, O mountains, for the Lord comforts His people and will have compassion on His afflicted ones. I think it's Isaiah who says that. I think he's been recording this information and he can't stand it anymore. He just explodes in praise and calling all of creation. Heavens, earth, oh, mountains, by the way, lift up your song. Why? For the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. But then we get to verse 14. It's the only speaking part that God's people have in this chapter. And look at what they say. They're called Zion, but Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me, the Lord has forgotten me. Do you know anybody that's a gray cloud to your silver lining? That's God's people here in verse 14. They just had 13 verses of brain-melting awesomeness And their response is a complaint. I feel like the Lord's forgotten us. I feel like He's forsaken us. Now, you and I might look at that with a raised eyebrow and say, how could you feel that way? But isn't that the reality of so many of the Lord's servants? We know the truths. We know the Scriptures. We've memorized them. We've sung the songs. And still, we find ourselves in these places where we we lodge this complaint. God, have you forsaken me? God, have you forgotten me? That's what it feels like as I assess my life and the junk I'm going through. I feel like I'm forgotten and left alone. And maybe you've been in that situation where you have literally lifted your voice to the heavens and cried out, God, do you even love me? 
And then maybe you chuckle at the silence that just resounds all around you. But I want you to know that God answered that very question long before you asked it. He answered it here in chapter 49. What comes in verses 15 to 26 are God's answer to his people's feelings that he's forgotten them. God's people get one line, one lousy little line in chapter 49. The Lord has forgotten me. That's the only line they get. Everything that comes next, which I think ought to be read with urgency and volume and intensity, is God the Father reassuring his people, I love you. I know what you feel like, but let me tell you what reality is. I love you, and here is the evidence of my love. How do we know that God loves us? Let me show you on the screen. I'll give you some notes to write down. How do we know that God loves us? Well, he's a God of unforgettable nearness. In verses 14 to 16, God uses this great picture. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she's born? Though she may forget, he says it's possible, though she may forget, I will not forget you. You're my people. You're my children. I've engraved you on the palm of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. He reassures his people that he could never forget them. A God who loves remembers his people in this way. He's a God of unforgettable nearness. He's a God of astonishing restoration. The astonishment astonishment comes from those who are restored. The astonishment comes from his people. Again, he uses this poetic language to describe the way he restores and brings fullness and blessing to his people. The picture is this. It's of a barren woman who one day walks in and all of a sudden, here's all these kids. And she says, where did they come from? They're obviously, these are mine. And suddenly, this space is too small for us. I I need more room. And then all the kids say, we need more room. That's the picture God's depicting, that the blessing is so great. What once was desolate now has life, which once was barren now is fruitful. That's what God's restoration is like. And it leaves his people dumbstruck. We would never say, yeah, this is is what I expected, and, and I really deserved all of this. We would take it in and say, I can't believe the goodness of God. I never could have dreamed what his love would do for me. How it would change everything. This astonishing restoration that the God of compassion brings to his people who feel forgotten. God reassures them, I've not forgotten you. In fact, I've got everything mapped out. How could I ever forget you? I'm bringing everything back. I'm gathering you in. I'm going to give you life and life abundantly. God's character and his power will accomplish this incredible work. His love is evidenced by his unforgettable nearness, his astonishing restoration, his total vindication of his people. Verses 23 through 26 at the end of the chapter might make you squirm a little bit. You've got to remember this. Um, it is, it's Jewish poetry, not written in 2018. So it talks about 
kings licking dust from the feet of God's people. Those who used to lord their authority over God's people now are humbled before them. And then verse 26, I'll make your oppressors eat their own flesh and they'll be drunk on their own blood as with wine. Again, you and I squirm a bit at that, but our squirming probably says more about us than it does about the text. Because if you had been in the, if you'd been in the place of God's people, and you'd experienced the brutality that these enemy nations had brought on them, verse 26 wouldn't make you squirm, it'd make you rejoice. Not because you too are bloodthirsty, or because you delight in cannibalism, that's not the case. But it's a picture of God's complete and total vindication of his people. How often do we ask the question, why do the wicked prosper while the righteous perish? God says that's not the way things end. There's judgment and total destruction for those who stand opposed to God and his people. And that reversal is for a greater purpose than just shifting world powers, so to speak. Look at the very last line of verse 26. Then... All mankind will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. The reversal is for a greater purpose than just Israel. It is so that all mankind will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. All of humanity will learn from Israel's testimony. All of humanity will be drawn to the God of their salvation through Israel's testimony. So when God's people say, we feel forgotten, God responds with 12 verses of his inescapable love for his people. If there was a verse 27 to this chapter, I think it would be God's people saying, move over mountains, we're joining the choir to rejoice alongside you. So what are the three keys to an immovable joy? A Messiah who is called and ready, a Messiah who saves, and a God who acts in love. So let's put them to the test. I want you to bring your sorrow before God. What's your hardship? What's your difficulty? I want you to bring it before God. I want you to sit it in front of Him. Put it to the test. The first thing you're going to learn is that you've brought the wrong problem. See, our problem, like Israel, is not some circumstance. Those circumstances can be crushing. Our first problem, our great problem, is our estrangement from God. Now, you didn't think of that when you were pulling out problems to test God on when it comes to joy, but God thought of that. And so in eternity past, God the Father called God the Son to be the solution for the problem you didn't even know existed. And the son said yes, and the son died a humiliating, torturous death, but God the Father was faithful to him to bring him through it. The son rose from the dead to save you from your sin. And you may push back and say, that's nice, but I still have problems, and I still don't know if God really loves me. Well, then the father steps in and gently reassures you with all the evidence of his love, supremely the death and resurrection of the son. And then suddenly you might realize that whether or not your situation changes in the short term, you have a God that loves you, and you have a song to sing. You have joy. Rooted in the eternal, 
unchanging, immovable, saving work of Jesus Christ. So Isaiah calls to you. Shout for joy, O heavens. Rejoice, O earth. Burst into song, O mountains, for the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. Let's pray together. Father, God, thank you for what we have seen this morning. We confess that verse 14 is often our transcript. We feel forgotten. But the reality is so much greater and more beautiful. Because you have told us this morning, we've not been forgotten. You said everything in place. You put it into motion. You're faithful to this task. Even when we are unfaithful, you're faithful to the saving work. You're a God who has compassion. I'm grateful that time and again this morning, the prophet reminded us of your compassion. So God, I pray for my brothers and sisters in here who are limping and who are struggling and are not practicing this resolute rejoicing because they've lost sight of the glories of their salvation, the work that you've done for them. God, I pray that you would lift them today, that they would receive the last 12 verses of this chapter as if they were spoken straight to them because indeed they are. Their names are engraved on your hand. They are ever before you. Father, thank you for a love like that. Pray for my friends in here that don't know you as their Savior. God, bring those captives out. Lord, for those who are in darkness, let them hear your voice say, Be free today by faith in Jesus Christ. Would you rescue them and give them this eternal life, this incredible restoration that you promised to your people? We are glad to be your people. Above all, we are grateful that you are our God, the sovereign, holy redeemer of Israel and the South Shore. God, we praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.